Bibles now, if you would please, to Philippians chapter 4. Most of you have probably noticed that on several occasions since I became pastor of the church that I've used the titles of songs, the names of songs to name my messages. Uh, In the first few months that I became pastor, there were just a lot of messages that I preached that I used the titles of country music songs. And uh, I really had no idea most of the time what those songs were about. Uh, I may have heard one or two lines of them, but to tell you what the theme was, I really didn't know, except to say that the theme of most country songs has something to do with, uh, if you're singing about a bar or singing about your dog and singing about, I don't know, the wife that left you and your pickup truck and all that, uh, once you get those things there, you pretty much covered the entire theme that you're going to find in a country music song. But there's also been times when I used um, the titles of rock songs. And I can tell you about 95% of the time I had no idea what those songs were about. And sometimes that can get you in a little bit of trouble. Um, I was studying for a message a few weeks ago and I was looking for a title. And so I decided that I was going to use the title of a song that was written in 1970 called One Toke Over the Line. I had no idea what that meant. And uh, so I thought, well, I think that means something like going the extra mile or something like that. So I thought I'd better look that up just to be safe. And when I found out that that was talking about taking a puff off a marijuana cigarette, and uh, so I didn't think that was probably too appropriate to put on the sign out front. So I don't know. I don't know how many people we would get to come to hear that sermon. All the ex-hippies in Rohnert Park would show up on that day, and, and we'd all have a good time, I'm sure. So I have to be a little bit careful about the uh, song titles. But I have no problem with the one that I've chosen tonight. This is from a gospel song. I am satisfied with Jesus. And as we look at the Apostle Paul, we find that that's exactly the way that he was. He was satisfied with Jesus. And there's a question that's asked in that song. It says, but the question comes to me as I think of Calvary, is my master satisfied with me? Now, there's some theological implications that go along with that because in one way we can say absolutely the master is satisfied with us and that's because of the work that he's done in us. And the only reason that he can be satisfied with us is the redeeming work of taking away our sins, forgiving us of our sins and making us righteous in the eyes of God through the imputed righteousness of Christ. And so in that way, uh, Jesus is absolutely, and God is absolutely satisfied with us all of the time. But there's also another side of that question when we ask, uh, is the master satisfied with us? And that is a purely the human side. And that would be, does my life reflect an attitude of Jesus Christ? Do I really show that Christ lives in me? And would the master say to me that you've, you've done well? And you're really walking the way that I want you to walk. Well, in this message tonight, I want to show you the peculiar way that Paul says, I am satisfied with Jesus. And what we discover in these verses is that Paul is hesitant about how to make that point. Now, this evening we're going to study verses 10 through 12 in chapter 4. But it's necessary for us to read all the way down to verse number 19 because the whole section here fits together. So if you'd stand with me, please, and look at Philippians chapter 4. I want to begin reading at verse number 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. 
Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. And everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding ye have done well that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the time together and Lord we pray that you might bless this message tonight and help us to understand what the Apostle Paul has written to us uh, in these words of scripture in Jesus name we pray amen you may be seated before we get into the outline tonight I want to lay out the problem of why it was so difficult for Paul to say I am satisfied with Jesus and that is essentially the meaning of the statement that he makes in verse number 11. He says, For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And what Paul means by that, he, he's saying, if all, of I have, if all that I have is my salvation, if I don't have anything material things, if every person chooses to leave me, if I spend the rest of my life in prison, if I have to go to the cross just as Christ went to the cross, I'm content to do so because I have Christ. And then he's also saying in this that if I have everything that the world has to offer, and if God chooses to put me into a place where he takes care of my every whim, and God says that there will be no suffering, there will be no hardships, no difficulties in life, he says I could live that kind of life too. And surprisingly, the latter one is probably the one that's the hardest for Paul to do. But why does Paul have so much difficulty saying this, that I am satisfied with Jesus, or in his own words, I am content in whatever state I am? Well, the answer lies in what this church had done for him. Now, here was a church that really liked to track Paul's moves. They loved him. They were a church that was founded by him. They were a church that stood by him. And whenever he was in a financial crisis, whenever he had a need, these were people that had taken up offerings to help him when he was in that need. And you can imagine that with the poor communications of that time and the long distances that Paul traveled, the uncertain times of the perils of traveling those roads in those days, that they were often uncertain of where Paul was. And so there were times when they lost track of him and they couldn't help him because they didn't know where he was. And so for long periods of time, they really didn't know if Paul was alive or dead. But when they did hear about him and when they found out that he was, uh, had a need and he was in prison, that friends had forsaken him, that he was unable to work and that he lacked all the basic necessities, whenever they found out that information, this church was ready to take up a collection and send it to him. 
And so that's what they did. They sent Epaphroditus to Rome to bring Paul an offering. And that's what the last part of this letter is about. This is where Paul thanks them, and he's overjoyed at the generosity for having received that offering. But we notice something here in these last verses, that Paul takes a long time getting to that point. Now, there are times when Paul can make very impactful, deep theological statements, and he makes them in very few words. And he doesn't have any trouble, it seems, revealing those great doctrines of the faith. But when it comes to a relatively simple thing here of of thanking these Philippians, he uses ten verses to explain his feelings. So why is that? Why does he do it? Well, here's the reason. And you may even think that I'm kind of stringing things along like Paul did. But the reason that it was so hard for him to do this was he had to thank them without appearing to be desperate. And so he has to show his great appreciation and at the same time tell them that I really didn't need it. Now we look at the circumstances that Paul is in and we say, well, absolutely, he did need it. Because if they didn't send him an offering, then what is he to do? He's going to live out his life in prison, a woeful life there. He'll die in misery. And if that's true, then everything that Paul taught them about peace and joy and contentment would be shot down. Because if he phrases this the wrong way, then it seems that he would be teaching them that the only way that a person can actually have contentment is if someone cares for you, or if someone uh, expresses love for you, or if someone's going to help you, or if you have material things. But the truth of the matter is, is he is satisfied with Jesus. All he needs is Jesus and nothing else. And so if that's all that he has, Jesus is enough and more than enough to satisfy every avenue of contentment in his life. And so do you get the point that I'm trying to get across here? He has to convey the message without hurting their feelings, and yet at the same time appearing to be, not appearing to be ungrateful. And certainly he was not ungrateful. He appreciated this gift. He, he loved their help, and he, and he loved them. But those were not the things in which he found contentment. So that background kind of sets the stage for the outline tonight. This is about being satisfied. It's about being content. And we have to rule out everything that goes on around us when we're talking about contentment, because that's not what Paul is speaking of when he says that he is content in whatever state that he's in. So we look then at verses 10 through 12 with that background in mind. Now, first of all this evening, I want to uh, speak about the personal expression of contentment. In verse number 10, he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Now, that is a reference to the time that Paul had no contact with the church in Philippi. They had always supported him. They are always careful to be aware of his needs and to help him in his ministry. But Paul says this. He says, I know that we were out of contact with one another. You didn't know where I was. You lacked the opportunity. And so, of course, uh, you couldn't help me. How could you if you don't know where I am or what I need? But he applauds them and he thanks them when, he founds out, when they found out where he was, that they did uh, start pouring out their offerings and their love for him, showing it in the things that they gave. Now, let me say this before we go on, uh, concerning giving to missions and supporting ministers of the gospel. That is a very important part of our worship. Learning the lesson of contentment is necessary for every person, and that 
includes the man who's doing the preaching, and includes all of our missionaries, includes all of us, and it is a very difficult lesson for us to learn. But we should never have the attitude that ministers can go hungry and that we're supposed to test their humility and test them to see if they actually practice what they preach. Keeping preachers and missionaries poor to try to teach them a, teach them a lesson is not our job. Now, no matter what happens on the other end, we have to fulfill the responsibility of taking care of those who, who are uh, preaching the gospel of Christ. We're to be supportive of the ministry, and we're supposed to show our gratefulness for those who help us with our spiritual needs. Now, you know, that's a very difficult subject for me to talk about because when I do it, it seems like I'm being self-serving. But it's something that's absolutely necessary for the church to understand because God blesses churches that bless their ministers. And that couldn't be any more evident than what we see right here in the Scriptures in the, in the uh, Philippian church. Paul's praises for this church are not incidental. Uh, I mean, he remembered them and he blessed them and God blessed them uh, by including this Philippian church in this eternal book that he's given us. Now, Paul may have had some difficulty trying to figure out how he's going to state all of this and how he could say it without appearing to be ungrateful, but he did finally write it down. And this has been preserved for us all of these centuries. And so people can read this, you and I can read it, and we can see how God mentions this church and honors the church because they were selfless in their giving. But the other side of that equation is certainly this, that Paul was satisfied no matter what he had. And that's because he knew something about his God. And there's some things that we need to know too. So let's look first then that we need to understand God's providence. Understand that God has this huge job of working out all circumstances for the good of all believers over the entire world. That's God's providence. Well, you may ask the question, what do you exactly mean by providence? Well, I like two definitions that were given in the dictionary, and uh, this dictionary that I read this from is by no means a theological dictionary. They don't claim to be so, but uh, they did give a good definition of this. What is providence? Well, the first definition is this, a manifestation of God's foresightful care for his creatures. A manifestation of God's foresightful care for his creatures. Then the second definition that was given, the prudence and care exercised by someone in the management of resources. Now, we're going to look at those two things for just a moment. First of all, God has foresightful care. Nothing comes as a surprise to God. God has prepared for every contingency. Now, I'm sure that the author of this dictionary uh, didn't contemplate what the biblical definition of foresight is or the word that's used in the King James Version, which is foreknowledge. Now, I want to show you something about this word in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you turn there for just a minute, we're going to get uh, uh, find the meaning here of the word foresight and the word foreknowledge. What does that mean in regards to God's providence? Now, if you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, uh, Peter introduces his epistle by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit and obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Now let's go down to verse number 18. 
It says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Now, foreordained in verse number 20 is the verb form of foreknowledge in verse number 2. That's the noun form. Christ was foreordained by God to be the sacrifice for our sins. And what that means is that his sacrifice was something that was predetermined. Now, in verse number 2, it says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. That does not mean that God looked down through time to see if we would believe, and then he chose us on that basis. It means that God predetermined the choice. In other words, if we believe, it's because God has predetermined our belief. Well, how does that then relate to providence? Well, God's foresightful care of his people is God's predetermined choice for his people. And when you understand God's providence in that way, how could you possibly discontent, be discontent? Abraham said, Shall not the judge of all the earth do rightly? Then the second definition of this was prudent care in the management of resources. If God is providential, then it means that he exercises prudent care in the management of his resources. And that is the same thing as what Abraham said in just another way, that God will do rightly with everything that he has. And so if I could put that in country terms, I would say God will do right by you. I found something that was interesting when I was reading about this the other day. Uh, There was one author who was talking about the difference between a miracle and providence. A miracle is when God just out of the blue says, well, here is something that needs to happen. And so God, by just speaking the word or whatever he does, he makes it happen. And God does a totally unusual thing out of the blue with just a simple command. Now, the question that was asked is, what is more difficult? Is it more difficult for God to perform a miracle, or is it more difficult for God to work through his providence? Now, what providence means is that God has all of the contingencies of everything that could possibly happen already taken care of. There are a million things that go off in a million different directions. There are zillions of God's people, if you want to put it that way, all over the world. And God has to make sure that every single detail interacts in such a way that it brings about his predetermined plan. There are countless things that go on just to do one thing, like to bring you to church on Wednesday night. Have you ever thought about what your life would be like if there was just one detail of your life that changed? You see, God has control of all of those little details, and he has to work them out to the nth degree to make everything work the way it's supposed to work. So what's hard? Uh, Harder, is it harder for God to do a bombastic miracle all at one time? Or is it harder for him to take all the little things that have to happen and all these many millions of different situations all across the globe, which is really harder for him to do? To do the miracle or to work things out by his providence? Well, when you learn this, that God knows all and God does all, he controls all, then that statement, shall not the judge of the earth do right, has a whole lot of meaning to it. So which then is harder, a miracle or God's providence? So that's the first thing when we think about uh, contentment in this way. A personal expression of contentment is to understand God's providence. 
contentment comes from realizing and accepting that God is in control. And that's why Paul had this grand theology about the sovereignty of God. And Paul states it so many times in such simple terms, and yet we as preachers argue about those things all the time. And I wonder what in the world are we arguing about? Why do we argue about this? Because if you understand God's providence, then you have absolutely no problem at all with God's predestination. God works it all out according to his plan, and it's not too hard for him. So God is the one who does all things well, and usually, if not always, whatever is left up to you generally gets messed up. Now, the second thing that we need to look at that we can learn from the expression of personal contentment is to accept what is paltry. How did Paul live in a prison cell without complaint? How did he exist without enough food? Uh, How did he stay in that dank prison cell without despair? Uh, Friends were deserting him. He didn't have what he needed, it seemed like. How, How does that happen? How could he do that? Well, he was satisfied with Jesus. And we're not talking here about happiness that's gained by taking a vacation every day. That's, that's not what Paul means. Now, did you know this, that the overriding problem of both liberal and fundamental theology is this very thing today? That is, liberalism says, well, what you need to do is you need to go out there and do whatever it takes to make yourself happy. There are no absolutes. It's all about you. You live the lifestyle that you want to live in any way that you can get there. Pursue the goal of happiness because everything is about you and you get happiness at any cost. Now, we call that liberalism, that type of liberalism, humanism. Now, the interesting thing about that is that much of fundamentalism is also humanistic. If you think for a moment about how the gospel is presented today. I mean, most gospel presentations will start out with something like this. God loves you. And God has a wonderful plan for your life. And if you trust Jesus, you'll find happiness. You'll be happier than you've ever been before. And the best part of it is that when you die, you get to go to heaven. Now, you do want to go to heaven, don't you? You do want to be happy, don't you? So why don't you trust Jesus? Now, you see what the theme in that is? It's no different than what the humanist liberal liberal person says because the ultimate result here, the end that you're trying to get, the goal is personal happiness. And most Christians live with that in their mind, that the goal of their salvation is to get them to heaven. Now, you know exactly what I'm going to say next, that the goal of salvation is not heaven, and the goal of salvation is not happiness. The goal of our salvation is the glory of God. And the reason that it is is because God deserves to be glorified. Now, if you are lost, you can't glorify God. God doesn't save you to make you happy. He saves you to glorify him. Now, when you understand that, when you see the purpose of your salvation is not to make you go skipping and hopping down the street, that's not the purpose of it. When you understand it is to glorify God, then you can live in the worst part of town. You can drive a clunker. You can wear shoes that have holes in them. And you can eat SpaghettiOs instead of steak. You can do all of that because your contentment is not about being self-satisfied. Now, this is the very key, then, to this particular section in Philippians. What is the meaning of contentment? What is Paul driving at? Well, the word doesn't mean that I'm happy because I'm snug as a bug in a rug. I have all these things, and I can add all these things to my life, and I keep adding this and this and this and this, and therefore I am content. Paul's language is not about being self-satisfied. What it's about is self-sufficiency. 
Now, hold on just a minute. Hear me out when I say this. It's about self-sufficiency. But when I say that, I'm not talking about that I'm dependent upon myself and I don't need anybody and I don't need God. That's not what it means. What self-sufficiency here means is that Paul says, I don't need anything other than what God has already provided. I'm not going to be any more happy or any less happy about whether I add this and this and this to my life or if I take this and this and this away from my life. And so that would be, do I have to add the material things and get those things, that'll make me happy? Or do I need to take away the sickness? Do I need to take away the troubles that I have? Do I need to take away the enemies that I have and therefore I'll be content? That's not what it's about. You see, it's all about whether I'm glorifying God and I'm satisfied in Jesus alone. That's where I find my contentment. Now, what that is, is actually the opposite of all the Christianity that you hear being preached on just about every channel on TV today. What you hear when you turn on the television or on the radio most of the time are things like this. God wants you to succeed. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to have all of your wildest dreams met And you are living in defeat if you have not found your financial success. But God says, you've already got your success if you got me. You have success. And that's what Paul's saying. I'm satisfied with Jesus. And it doesn't matter if you give me a $10,000 check or you kick me in the teeth. I'm still satisfied. I'm not dependent upon anything but Christ. Now, you see why I say it's so hard for Paul to say this? How is he going to say that in a way that they get it? Now, he didn't want to say, well, I was just about done for. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was lost, and and I have no idea how I'm going to survive. If you hadn't helped me, what would I do? Now, they might have liked to hear that. That would bolster their ego, and they'd say, well, look what we did for Paul. I mean, we're just fine Christians because of this offering that we send him. But that would be self-defeating, wouldn't it? I mean, their happiness then would be dependent upon the praise that they receive from Paul. Now, I don't know if you're getting this, but it's a tangled web that we have to unravel here just to understand what he says. I have learned in whatsoever state therewith to be content. And so he says, I don't speak in respect of want. I'm not telling you this because I'm destitute. I have everything in Christ, whether you help me or not. I have it all. But I just want to let you know that I do appreciate the gift. Now, you know something that, that if, if it was preached, what Paul really said to 35,000 people in Joe Olstein's church, next week they'd sell the building because they wouldn't have 25 people to fill up the front row. And you know why? Because the goal of that type of preaching is personal happiness. It's not about God's glory. It's about man's contentment. Now, let me finish this up, and I'm going to go back to something that I said earlier. And the second part refers to the paradox of contentment. Now, this is not a point on your listening sheet, so you won't find a place to write this down. But I suppose that there is one paradox that people most definitely see in this. And that is, if we're to be content in whatever state that we're in, do we just sit here without a job And do we sit here without a house, no place to live, and not enough food to eat? And we say, well, okay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. God has it all handled. We're not talking about fatalism here. And there's some people that really do not get the difference in this. They don't understand the difference between God's sovereign plan and fatalism. Fatalism is random and chaotic. It assumes that there's no one who's in control, and things work out just the way that they work out. 
And you don't know how many times that I've heard preachers in their sanctified wisdom say that believing in election and predestination amounts to nothing more than fatalism. And I would just have to ask, what school did they go to? This is not fatalism. It's not random chance happening. It's the exact opposite. We're speaking here about everything that is controlled by the one who is the creator of this universe. There's nothing that's out of his purview. Now, fatalism is when someone says, well, Christ died to give people a chance to be saved. That's real fatalism because then nobody's in control. Or if there is somebody in control, it would have to be you. And that's a wonderful thing to know that you're in charge of your salvation, isn't it? Because look at you. I mean, you couldn't even tie your shoes in the morning if God didn't give you breath to breathe. Why in the world would you want to be in charge of your own salvation? So we're not talking here about a fatalistic view. Well, I don't have a job, so that's okay. It's, if it's meant to be, that's, what meant, that's what's meant to be. So it's not speaking about whether you can better yourself. It's not saying you ought not to go out and look for a better job or try to get a better house. It's nothing about that at all. You can do all of those things. If you seek those things honestly, that's all right. There's no problem with it. The point, though, is don't be controlled by those things so that your life only matters if you have all of those things. Now, if God sees fit that you shouldn't have any of those things, then you don't let the lack of all these other things govern your attitude. So you don't go around with a long face, and you don't say, woe is me, look how terrible that life is, because your contentment is not found in all of those other things. Now, let me finish, though, with the two paradoxes that I mentioned earlier. Now, the first one, the first paradox is the problem of being poor. Look at verse number 12. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Now, I'm not going to talk about just being poor in material things. Let's think about it in another way. What if you're treated poorly? What if you're a Christian and you know right up front what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.13. I want you to listen to just a part of this verse. Paul says, We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. You know, I've never heard sweet little Joel read that verse. Uh, In fact, what I have heard him say is that people will honor you because you are a Christian. And I've heard him say that people know whose child you are and they know who your father is and so they'll honor you. Well, we know who his father is, and birds of the feather flock together. But what do you do when you're treated badly? I mean, what, what do you do when you're ridiculed? How do you face the people at work with the right kind of attitude and the same look on your face? I mean, can you maintain a, a sweet spirit in the face of the bitterness that people bring to you? Now, real contentment in Paul's book is when he speaks and means that there is no external change in me Because my satisfaction does not come from all of those external things. My satisfaction is only in Christ. Now, it is definitely paradoxical, at least in the world's way of thinking, to say that I'm content when I'm being treated poorly. And I'm content when I don't have all these material things that other people have. Contentment and being poor does not go together in the same context. That's the way that we think. Then the second paradox that we find in this is the problem of being prosperous. Now, here's the cure then, as most people see it. I'll become prosperous, and then I'll be content. Now, that's the Osteen principle. 
And what he does is he doesn't really preach a gospel of contentment at all. He preaches a gospel of discontentment because it's your discontent that feeds your desire to be content. Now, that is a paradox if there ever was one. Try to figure that out in your mind. Your discontent feeds your desire to be content. And it's totally the wrong approach. But for the rest of us who have not been mesmerized by curly hairdos, there's a paradox if you come down on the other side too. What do you do when you are are abounding rather than being abased? Now, that's what I alluded to earlier when I said, well, maybe it's harder for Paul to deal with this side of the issue uh, than it is the other. I mean, what do you do when you're pampered instead of being poor? Now, what do you do when you're poor? I mean, what, what happens to you when people treat you terribly? Well, the thing that you do is you get down on your knees and you begin to pray and you ask God to help you through that. You ask God to give you the right attitude and the right spirit. And then you plead with God to supply your daily needs, your daily bread. And so you are genuinely dependent upon God. But what happens when you're prosperous? Do you think about God in the same way? I mean, do you have the same desire to pray to him when you're prosperous? And do you uh, see an urgency about speaking with God when you're prospering? You see, when you're filled up with all of your wants, rather than just what you need... It's very hard to stay dependent upon God. That's when we become self-satisfied and sufficient in our own resources. Now, I think it was John MacArthur who said something like this. He said uh, something very odd. He said, in America, we really don't have any wants. You might say, well, that doesn't sound right at all. I have all kinds of wants. He said, no, you don't really have any wants. All that you ever have is needs. And you think about that for just a moment. I need an iPod. I need, I mean, I, I, I need a, a cell phone that I can touch the buttons on, and I, I mean, I can flip through the screens with my finger. I need that. I need a 60-inch LCD TV. I need a timeshare in Fiji. And so all of these things that should be once have actually become our needs, so we don't really have any once at all. But the question is, though, do you really feel the same way towards God when you're prosperous? That's the paradox of prosperity. And most often, it really does not bring us contentment. It doesn't bring Paul's type of contentment. And it's exactly why that Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. It's all about your source of contentment. So Paul was satisfied with Jesus. And whether it was good or whether it was bad, nothing was going to substitute for Jesus. So here is the problem that Paul faces in these scriptures. How do you show gratitude for the gift and at the same time tell the people that you don't depend upon their gifts? Now, of course, he has to keep encouraging them to keep on giving because that is absolutely the right thing to do. And I would be wrong if I stood up here and said that all of us are going to find our contentment and your pastor is going to find contentment and all our missionaries are going to find contentment, so keep your money in your pocket because they don't need it anyway. Well, that would be the wrong thing for me to do, even though the other side is absolutely true. We are satisfied in Jesus. We still have this responsibility that God has given. So Paul has to keep on teaching this. But he teaches them to understand this, that it's right for them to give. God requires us to give. It is an act of love. It's an act of loving our neighbor when we give as we're supposed to give. But at the same time, he's telling us that if all the recipient has is God, if that's all that he has, then that's all that he really needs. So being content 
is not so easy, is it? It's not really an easy thing to figure out. I mean, rationalizing the correct concepts on this are probably harder than living in either prosperity or being poor. It's just hard to get together. It's a head-swimming type of issue. So we come down to this. We just bring it all down to this. I am satisfied. I am satisfied with Jesus. But the question comes to me as I think of Calvary, is my master satisfied with me? And I hope that all of us have found our satisfaction, our contentment in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the word that we've looked at tonight. And it is hard for us to put this all together to understand when we are being content as we should be content. But help us to understand your providence and that we really don't need to depend upon outside sources or anything. Whatever you desire for us to have is what you want us to have. And that is where our contentment is found. We have Jesus, and we know that we're in your will. We're walking according to your plan, and we need to be satisfied with what you have given us. So, Lord, we pray that you would bless and help our people to understand this better and better every day, to find their source of contentment only in Jesus Christ. Bless in this time, Lord, as we sing, and we give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's bless